0: Dear Father, uh, we come to you really uh, really grateful to get to be together again with these students, with these people, and and grateful to get to open up your word, but whatever I may say tonight, whatever information I may try to bring uh, lacks any ability to change us without your spirit at work in us, and so God, I ask that you would Uh, that you would come and do that, and that you would open our eyes to uh, the glory and importance and magnificence of Jesus tonight. Help us to see him more clearly through your word. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, There is uh, this British pastor by the name of Rico Tice, which is a really odd name, and I don't think it's British at all. but Rico Tice is this guy's name. And, and, and Rico tells this story uh, about this time that he got invited to this really fancy uh it's like a dinner club. It's like a restaurant, but it's a club. You've got to have a membership to go into it somewhere there in London, a place that he had never been before, a place he definitely didn't frequent. But he got invited by this father and this son who were members of it to come join them there. And so he, he got to go and hang out at this really cool place. So he goes, he shows up, and he goes into the waiting area, and the, the father and son aren't there yet. And so he can't go in by himself. He needs them. And so he decides to just wait there. There's these kind of stairs in the waiting area, so he just sits there or just kind of stands there on the stairs. And and it's him and it's one other guy. Uh, This kind of younger man who's sitting there in this small little space with him, and Tyson says he keeps looking at this guy going, I think I might know that dude. That dude is like vaguely familiar, but he can't place it, and he can't quite figure it out, and so he said, "We, we did what British people are best at, which is smile sheepishly and say nothing to each other, and so they just sat there for like five minutes. And then all of a sudden this, uh, this person comes and opens the door and looks into the waiting area and says, Ah, there you are, William. Uh, we've been waiting there in the back. Come on with us. And Rico Tice says he looks up and he realizes the reason this guy that he's been sitting with looks vaguely familiar is because he's been sitting in a room with Prince William. Like the, the future king of England, Prince William. Just him and Rico Tice have been alone one-on-one in this room for five minutes and, and having nothing better to do than just have a conversation. And he totally missed the chance because he did not recognize his future king when he sat there in the room with him. And he kicked himself for that. Dude, that's such a bummer. Imagine the stories you could tell about the time you had a conversation with the King of England and those kinds of things, the stuff you'd be able to pass on to your grandkids. And he totally missed out on that. It would be a huge bummer. Uh, But can I tell you, uh, there there are things worse than that. Like, Like the idea of sitting in a room with someone far more important, far more famous, far more valuable, and not recognizing that. Like like to sit in a room like that with the king, not just of England, but the king of the universe, and not know it would be not just a bummer, but a tragedy. So let me ask you this question tonight. If it was you sitting in a waiting room for five minutes with Jesus, would you know it? Would you recognize him? I know some of you guys are going, yeah, it's, it's the Jewish carpenter with the beard and the robe and all that stuff. I'm going to know him if I see him. I'm not talking about, like, how he looks or anything like that. I mean, like, would you know him by his character? Would you know him by the way he acts? Would you know him by the things that he was saying? Would you recognize it? Or would you, would you sit there and go, man, something about this guy is vaguely familiar. Can't quite put my thumb on it. Trying to figure out what exactly it is. And, and would you miss out on that? If, if Jesus himself spoke to you tonight, would you recognize his voice? That's the question that I want to kind of hang over us, and that's the reason for the series that we're jumping into this semester. We're calling the series Encounters with Jesus. And what we're going to do, like I said, we're not walking through any particular book. We're going to be actually kind of making our way into different stories in the Gospels. Stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where an individual or a group of people encountered Jesus and had some sort of dialogue or interaction with him, and we're going to study those together, and then we're going to try and discern what we can learn about Jesus, what we can learn about their encounters with Jesus so that we can be the kinds of people who know the King of Kings when we see him. So we can be the kinds of people who recognize his voice. That's what we want for you as we study through these things tonight. Now, normally when you start something, any sort of story on someone, the best place to start is at the beginning. And and for the rest of this semester, we're going to be going chronologically from the beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way to the end. But that's not what we're doing tonight. Tonight, I want you to start at almost the very end. John 14, if you have your Bibles, you can go there. Tonight we're starting at the, the, the very last night in Jesus' ministry before he goes to the cross and dies. It is a Thursday night. We don't know the exact year. Many people think it's A.D. 33. If that's the case, then it would have been April 2nd on a Thursday night. Is the evening of the Jewish Passover, and the whole town is packed together with all these pilgrims. It was a pilgrimage festival, and so if you were a Jewish male, when Passover came, you were required to come to Jerusalem uh, for the festivities, and so it's packed with all these people inside and outside the city, and then there's this little house that sits over in probably, we think, the southwest corner of Jerusalem, and in this house, Up in this upper room area, Jesus sits with his 12 disciples. And his 12 disciples are devastated. They are beside themselves with shock and grief and fear. Because in the course of about 45 seconds, Jesus just dropped three bombshells on them that they did not see coming from anywhere. The first one is this, that one of them, one of the 12 that they had been hanging out with and walking with and talking with and laughing with and joking with for the last three years, one of them was a traitor. And they don't know who it is yet, but one of them is about to betray Jesus. And, and this sends kind of this shockwave through the room as they all start looking around going, who's it going to be? Who is it? The second thing that he tells them is that another one of them, though he's not going to betray Jesus, is going to deny him, is going to, in Jesus' greatest hour of need, is going to walk away from his friend. And it's not just anybody, it's Peter, who's kind of considered kind of the out-front leader, the bold one. If Peter can't make it, what chance do any of us have? But the the big thing that Jesus says on that night that really just kind of blows them away and takes all the wind out of their sails is this one statement, I am going away. And where I go, you cannot come, Jesus says. And that's not fair. It doesn't make any sense to them because these men in this room have sold out their entire lives to following this man, Jesus. They came to believe when they saw him do the amazing things he did, when they heard him say the incredible things that he was saying, they came to believe that this was the Messiah that had been promised for hundreds of years. This was finally the one who was going to come and set our people free. And so they gave up like everything. They, they left jobs. They temporarily at least left their homes and their families and began to just walk with Jesus all the way around the area of Palestine, of Judea, of Galilee, of Samaria, walking around following him. And it was Hard And it was kind of crazy and it seemed strange at times, but it was worth it because they knew who he was, that he was going to like bring freedom to Israel, that he was going to conquer the Romans, that he was going to set up his throne. And, and now Jesus' popularity has been crazy on the rise in the last few months. And at the same time, the heat and the pressure from the authorities and those who hate him has also been on the rise. As jealousy starts to mount and and they can tell that people are coming after them. And right in the middle of all of this, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I'm leaving. And they are beside themselves. What do you mean you're leaving, Jesus? You You can't leave. Do you realize all we've left for you? We've pinned our entire hopes for not just our lives, but our families and our nations on you. Where are you going? How could you be doing this? And Jesus moves into, from this point on, an explanation of why he's doing what he's doing and what that's going to look like for him. And that's what brings us into our text today John 14, starting in verse 1. Here's what Jesus says to them Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if not i would have told you i am going away to prepare or sorry if not i would have told you i am going away to prepare a place for you if i go away and prepare a place for you i will come again and take you to myself so that where i am you may be also So what we'll see if you read through chapters 14, 15, and 16 is Jesus basically explaining to them beyond any ability for them to comprehend. They don't get it, but he begins to explain to them that actually his going away is going to be one of the best things that's ever happened to them. And of course, like I said, they they don't understand. That would be really difficult, but it's one of the best things that will ever happen to them, and it's one of the best things that will ever happen to you that Jesus decided to go away. He says here in, this, in chapter 14, the reason I go away, I am going away to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. Uh, this is kind of, an odd phrase an odd statement by the way if you've ever heard the idea that in heaven we'll all have mansions that's because in the king james version whenever this was first translated back in the 1600s mansion was a word i don't i don't know how it switched but mansion was a word that meant like small dwelling place or abode okay and so it's kind of like yeah this is what the person wrote it says so i'm going to prepare this small little dwelling place you know just a little mansion right And then over time, as people forgot what it used to mean and people started reading mansion, they are like, sweet, we are going to have a big mansion in heaven. Um, Actually, the word doesn't even mean small necessarily in the Greek. It just means a dwelling place because the focus is not on the size of the dwelling place. That's irrelevant. The focus is on the fact that Jesus is taking us to be with him. He says, I go there to prepare a place for you, which is kind of odd if you think about it. What does it mean for Jesus to go and prepare a place in heaven? The, like, is that like when you invite company over and you look around, you're like, ah, crap, the place is a mess? And so God is like, Jesus, you got to start cleaning up in here. We got company coming. Is it, is it like He's building, He's got to add rooms on because there's not enough space up there? Like, what does it mean that Jesus goes to prepare a place for them? Well, here's, here's actually what you need to be able to catch. I, I actually always thought that the idea was Jesus went to heaven to prepare a place in heaven. Like, that's what he's actually saying. Actually, I don't think that's what he's saying. When Jesus talks about going to the Father, like he says here, I'm going away, I'm going to the Father, we always think the moment that Jesus went to the Father was in the ascension, when he rises up in heaven. That's him going to the Father. That's not actually how Jesus talks. Jesus describes his going to the Father, his going away, as the whole process between the point that he gets arrested And then goes to trial and is crucified all the way up through his ascension. So everything from arrest to trial to death to burial to resurrection to ascension, that is his going away. So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, I don't think he's saying I'm going to this spot so I can prepare a place for you. He says, my going is what's going to prepare a place for you. I go, I go to the cross, I go to the grave, I come up from the grave so that you have a spot in heaven with me, so that you can come to my father's house. That's what I am doing. It might look, he says to them, like I'm losing tomorrow when I'm hung up on the cross and I'm bleeding and people are cursing at me. But just know that when I'm hanging there, I'm building you a home. Verses 4 and 5, he says this, You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, "uh, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Uh, Thomas is a little bit, Thomas is always, Uh, quick to be able to kind of jump in there if something doesn't quite make sense. And so he says to Jesus, listen, we, we, we don't even know the location that you're talking about. We don't even know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And that's when Jesus makes this incredible statement. It's one of the most famous statements in the Gospel of John. You might know it. Verse six, and we'll read into seven. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you knew me, you will also know my Father, and from now on you do know him and have seen him. Uh, Jesus says, I did not come, actually, to tell you about the way, or to point to the way, or to reveal the way to you. He says, I am the way, and there is no other way to God aside from me. And, And it's statements like this. That Jesus seems to throw out every now and then just kind of mess everything up for a lot of people. Because I don't know if you know this actually, but Jesus is actually a pretty likable guy. Um, And this is like a, a real thing. Most people throughout history, Christian or not, have really, really liked Jesus. Like most people can get behind a lot of the things that Jesus says, and and how can you not? He comes and he does all these really cool things, and so people are quick to call him a really great man or a prophet sent from God or an incredibly spiritual person or a good teacher, and it makes sense because he comes in and he upends all the social power structures and he cares and shows compassion to the poor and he preaches these really good messages that everyone can agree on, Right? Jesus comes and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And everybody goes, yes, that's great stuff. We should have, the world needs more love. And Jesus says, and forgive one another. And he goes, yes, like forgiving is so good. Jesus says, love your enemies. And we go, I, I don't know about that one as much, but it's a really cool ideal, Jesus. I'm glad that you did that. That's really cool. And, and he says things like, you don't need to worry because your father knows what you need. And people go, yes, Jesus, thank you. I needed to hear that. I needed that peace from you. And then Jesus comes and says things like, there is no other way to God except through me, and you can't get to him without me. And people go, crap. Ah, You you ruined it, Jesus. kind of ruined the mood, man. Like we were all in this together. We can all agree on all of these really cool things that you're saying. We're all on the same page. But then you go and you say things crazy like that. It's so hard to get behind that. But do you see what Jesus has done here? What Jesus does when he makes statements like this is he brings a dilemma to us. Because you cannot be a good man and talk like that. You can't be a good spiritual leader and talk like that. You can't be someone that's really worth um, listening to and hanging out and say those kinds of things if it's not true. Girls, if one of your friends came to you today and said, hey, I met this guy, Um, he is... An amazing guy. I think he's going to be perfect for you. You've got to come meet him. He's so nice. He's so kind. He's really funny, but he's like—he's not the kind of guy who's always making jokes. He wants to like stop and listen to you too. He's a great listener. He's really good looking. He's so wonderful. You really need to meet him. Um, there is just this one thing. Uh, he keeps calling himself God and says you have to give your absolute allegiance to him, and you'll never know God without him. Other than that, great guy. You're gonna love him, okay? Nobody goes, oh, great. Yeah, I gotta go, I'll, I'll go out with him. You know what? I think I can change him. I've dated other guys who are self delusional messiah maniacs before. <laughs> I can change him, right? Um, nobody goes, well, that's okay. I can, I can do, like, as long as he's funny, you know? Hey, uh, he might demand my worship every now and then, but as long as he's funny. Um, Nobody says that, right, because if a guy is making claims like that, it means he's either a manipulative con man, or he's delusional, or it's true. And Jesus cuts out all the middle ground so you don't get to call him nice. And he takes away all the other options so you don't get to say he's a good teacher and that he's got good things to say because he can't say those things unless it's true. He's not worth following. Even those people who like to take little bits of Christianity and a little bit of Buddhism or a little bit of kind of their own mix of religion and go, I'll take a little bit of this. No, no, no. You can't take any of that stuff from someone who talks crazy like that. But if he's not talking crazy, then you can't just take a little bit of it either. You have to have all of him. If that's who he is, this is what Jesus does to us. And in a case the disciples think that they might be misunderstanding him a little bit here, he doubles down in the next couple verses. Verse 8, Lord said, Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. So Philip here, just so you know, I think is in desperation mode because the thing that he asks Jesus here is an incredibly bold request. Show us God, Jesus Okay, if Philip knows his Bible at all, and he does, I'm sure any good Jewish boy knows their Bible back then, he knows that there have only been a handful of people in the history of the world who have ever had a chance to glimpse God. And even those people weren't actually seeing, like, God. They were seeing kind of this vision-slash-representation of him because he's spirit, he's invisible, you can't fully see him. And even that little glimpse of his glory was, like, almost too much for them. So when Philip makes this request of Jesus, first of all, he must think something of Jesus, something pretty impressive of Jesus, that Jesus can do this. But this is a pretty crazy ask, and Jesus doesn't look at him and go, that's not possible, Philip, you're talking crazy. He goes... I got good news. Uh, you, you've seen him. Like when you look at me, you see the father. He's not saying here, by, by the way, he's not saying he is the father. He's not saying the same person. But he is saying that he and the father are one. That he and the father are intermingled, inseparable. That they are of the exact same essence, coexisting together for all time in eternity. He's not saying that he's the father, but he is saying that he's God. Philip, you're talking to the one who made you, to the one who made the ground you stand on, to the one who created the stars that spin above your head right now. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip, when you listen to my voice, you are hearing the voice of the Father. This is the claim above all claims, and it's the reality that shapes everything that we're going to learn for the rest of this semester. We keep this truth in mind because it is not just that, it is also the reality that ought to shape every area of our lives, and we're going to explain a little bit more of what we mean by that right after this break. So take a couple minutes, stretch, we'll jump back into it in a few minutes. All right. So earlier I asked you to turn to the person uh to the left, to the right, whatever and tell them the most unique thing you did. Over the Christmas break, um, I, I I've asked that question to kind of a couple of people, kind of just hey, what are you what are you doing over the break? Anything kind of different? All that stuff. And uh, of course, I was talking to Kyle Young uh, earlier this week. If you want anybody who's done anything unique, you can talk to Kyle Young. Uh, and I asked, I talked to Kyle. I said, like, so, you know, what would you do over the break? And you know, oh, not much. I did some traveling. I hung out here. Da da da. Uh, acquired a homing pigeon. What? <laughs> Actually, no. See, you, you heard that. What? If it was anybody else, I would have said, what? But since it was Kyle Young, I said, that sounds about right. Uh, if, like, if you were to come to me, by the way, if you were to come to me and say, someone in this room owns a homing pigeon, I wouldn't, it would not take two guesses. I'd be like, Kyle Young owns a homing pigeon. I believe it. Uh, I would know right away because Kyle just does random things like that. And so he, he actually owns like homing pigeons that can like, travel, and, and his plan is, to, to actually, like, deliver messages to people with pigeons. So if you get, like, a pigeon that just comes by with a letter for you or something like that, uh, you can know right away that's Kyle. Actually, I asked Kyle, I was like, so how does that work? Like, how do... That that actually works. Pigeons can actually send messages. I'm like, how do they know where to go? How do they... Um, yeah, how do they... You, you, do they read a map? Do you, like, whisper it in their ear? How do they know which direction to go? And he was explaining to me, Maybe maybe you knew this. I didn't know this. They homing pigeons don't go anywhere, um, they just go home, which is why they're called homing pigeons, right? So, they, so basically, if you can get them placed in a spot, and like they've got to be there two weeks, right, Kyle? If they nest in a place for two weeks, then you can take them anywhere, like literally anywhere, and they will find their way back uh, to, to home. And so you can tie a little message to their leg or whatever and send it there. And so Kyle is going to mail his homing pigeon in the mail, to another place so his friend can then tie a paper to the pigeon and send it back uh, to Stillwater. So I kind of want to be there to see that when that happens. But uh, so I got intrigued and I started like researching pigeons. I got totally into this. Uh, And so now I'm about to give you what I know you all came for tonight, pigeon facts. All right. So, uh, homing pigeons have been used, like I thought this was like, oh, this is a really cool recent thing we realized they can do. And so, you know, I had heard that they used them in like wars and stuff like that for, you know, World War II, World War I and stuff. No, they have been using homing pigeons for 3,000 years, um, at least for like racing. They would like, they would take them far away from a place and then just let them race and see which one gets back home. They would use them in the Olympics. In like the 8th century BC, if you were going to compete in the Olympic Games, you would bring a a pigeon from your village to the Games, and then after like your competition, like if you won, you would send word back by the pigeon, like back to their home. So like people have been using these things for forever. Um, like I said, they race them, they do lots of stuff. In 2013, the fastest racing pigeon in the world, whose name was Bolt, by the way, Bolt was sold in 2013 uh, for $453,000. Homing pigeons can find home from up to, uh, like on average, like they can get there from at least about 1,100 miles away. Like, you can take them in a box, and you can, like, block it off, and you can even, they've even talked about how, like, they're, like, spinning, like, spinning them around as they move, so they can't, like, find their bearings and all that stuff. It's, like, the the most intense game of hostage ever, right? (laughs) And they take these pigeons, and then they just release them, and they win the game every time. They fly 1,100 miles home. They say, actually, that, like, in 1931, one of them flew from uh, 7,200 miles from France to Vietnam. Took 24 days, they said, and made it all the way back there, which is just insane to me. Uh, here's my, f- my favorite homing pigeon. My favorite homing pigeon was a pigeon named uh, Cher Ami. I'm sure I'm butchering that. It's a French name. Um, one time in World War I, there was this American battalion that was caught behind enemy lines and they were surrounded on all sides by the Germans in this place. And not only that, but they were taking on friendly fire, friendly artillery and like their own comrades thought that they were on the other side of this slope. And they were firing off, and they were taking fire from them. And all their communications were down, and they were completely surrounded, so they couldn't send anybody out to get the word out. They're just getting shelled by their own people. And so the only thing they could do is is they grabbed a homing pigeon and sent it out and threw it up into the air to take off. And and it took off, and it made it just like a 100 feet, and then the Germans shot it out of the air. And it went to the ground and died, okay? And then they threw another one and they shot, like, I didn't know, like, apparently they have, like, German soldiers just with shotguns watching for pigeons flying out, but they were shooting them down. They take the, they got one last pigeon, share me, and they throw, they, they send the message, please stop bombing us, your friends. And they, and they send that thing out, right? And sure enough, the Germans see it, shoot it down, and it goes all the way down to the ground, hits the ground, gets, uh, one leg shot off, one eye shot out, and then gets back up and flies 25 miles and delivers the message and saves all the people uh, from the baton. Isn't that awesome? It, like, it literally won like a medal of honor for doing this. So, um, crazy stuff. Um, If you try to ask, this is the last picture thing, if you try to ask, like, how do they do it? Like, I was asking Kyle, like, how? How do they know? How do they know where to go? How do they get home? Uh, Scientists will use all these different things. They'll be like, some of them say that they use the position and the angle of the sun uh, to figure that out. Or perhaps there's this internal compass thing that they call a magnetoreceptor inside of them or they call it magnetoreception that they use or they think that they might be hearing infrasound like rumblings under the ground uh, but like if you push them real strongly, they're like yeah but how's that work they're like we don't know uh, it's like pigeon magic is basically the best the best word we have to describe it but all of them there's this innate ability to come and get home why do I tell you all of this tonight it's because, and this is the message I want you to get. If, you're gonna, if, you, if you take notes, you can write this down, right? Okay, this is, this is the important thing I want you to get. You are a broken pigeon. And I am a broken pigeon. I'll explain that more later, but you are a broken pigeon. Before I explain it, first I want you to walk back with me to that upper room in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. When Philip is up there, he makes this request to Jesus, please, Father, if you'll just show us the Father, that will be enough. And it is a bold request, but but actually, whether Philip knows it or not, what he's actually stating in that moment is the cry and the longing of every human being for all time. Show us God. That'll be enough. Everyone around you and everyone throughout history has longed to see and know God. Uh, they don't all call it that. They don't all know that. Earlier generations got it, like they, they were kind of upfront about what they were doing. Yes, we're trying to find God. Yes, we're trying to please the gods. Yes, we want to know who God is or who the gods are. In more modern times, in more recent times, we use other words like meaning or purpose that we are looking for enlightenment happiness spiritual connection fulfillment inner peace call it whatever you want it's all the same every human being has this feeling inside of them that no matter how much they try to shake it they know it to be true that there is something bigger than me and there is something bigger than what i can see in front of me that i am meant to find that i am meant to have and so most human beings spend their life chasing after that thing. And like I said, they, they, they may not know it's God. They'll call it happiness. They'll call it inner peace. But they spend much of their life chasing after those things. Why is that? There's this early church father, one of the famous ones, Augustine was his name. And 1,600 years ago, he said this pretty famous quote, said it about God. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our heart is restless. That is, by the way, a great word for a lot of college students that I know. Restless. Till it finds its rest in you. We keep telling you this. We told you this several times last semester at the table. You were made to know God. He made you for Himself. He made you to know Him. He made you to glorify Him. He made you to live in uh, constant fellowship with Him, to receive love and joy from Him and to give those things back to Him. You were made for those things, to enjoy Him forever. And when we don't have that, when we have separated ourselves from Him through our sin, through our rebellion, through whatever else, when we don't know, our hearts are restless, And every one of us is is really like a pigeon with, with some sort of broken internal compass that is constantly flying around trying to find home. I know it's there. Something in me tells me there's something, someone, somewhere I belong, and I'm going back and forth trying to find it. Every day, listen, let me tell you, every day when you step on campus, you walk past people that are doing one of two things. They are either restlessly chasing fulfillment and happiness through success or through relationships or through uh, uh, their major or through whatever it is trying to find something that is going to fill that little gap in them. They are trying to find home. They're either doing that or, second, they are trying desperately to quiet that voice that keeps telling them they can't find home. Through distractions like parties or Netflix or sex or video games or whatever just shuts the voice off for a little bit so I can breathe. Because our hearts are restless until they find their place back in God. Some people follow a uh, particular plan. Um, some people follow all kinds of things to try and find this stuff. I don't know if you can see that in people. I don't know if, um, maybe, maybe this is you actually as I describe it. Maybe you sit here and go, that, I think that might be me. Restless is a word I would use to describe myself. I don't know. This is, by the way, though, what I've just told you is is the reason why religion will never actually go away. Uh, There were a lot of predictions in the 20th century as our understanding of science grew. There were a lot of predictions that pretty soon science will tell us everything there is to know, and therefore we'll have no need for superstition. We'll have no need for religion and fairy tales and God to try and kind of explain things. And so eventually, as our knowledge rises, religion will plummet. But actually, what we've discovered is that that's not true. The vast majority of the world, at least 83% of the world, they say, is religious, because we know better, because we know that science tells us a lot of good things, but it's not telling us the whole story. We long for something more and something deeper, and so throughout history, men and women have showed up on the scene and said a lot of different things like, I've come to show you the way. Follow me. Like I, I, I'm a messenger from God. I've come to help you find God. And when they say that, people flock to them. Starting a religion is not hard. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's like easy to start cults and religion because people are hungry for something. And every time a man or a woman shows up on the scene and says, I can get you to God, I know the way, they always come with some kind of plan with some kind of method or some kind of uh, practice to do, and and most of them are very similar. It basically breaks down to follow these rules, observe these principles, engage in these practices, or if nothing else, at least be a good person. That's what a lot of us kind of aim for, to be a good person. This is the way. Do these things. And some people follow a particular plan from a religious leader. Some people kind of cobble together their own path. And if I can just be a good person, if I can find kind of my own spirituality, my own connection to God, my own path to God, but all of us search for something. And then there's this one guy. This one guy after like hundreds and thousands of people keep showing up and explaining that they know how to get to God. There's this one guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who comes and he says something radically different. He shows up and he says, there is no plan. There is no method. I am the plan. I am the way. And if the way to knowing the living God is through a person and not a plan, that means that you'll never be able to cobble together a plan yourself. You can't take little bits and pieces from ideas and philosophies and religions because Jesus says none of them work, not even the Christian ones. Not even the Bible ones because all the ideas and the practices in Christianity and the Bible are good things and they are things that are brought to us for our good and we ought to do them but none of them do anything to get you to God. Jesus says, it's what you do with me. You've probably heard me say this quote because I love it a lot if you've been at the table very long. Tim Keller puts it like this. Every other religion starts with someone declaring, I've come to help you find God. The gospel is the only one that starts with Jesus declaring, I'm God, come to find you. And that ties us actually to the other mystifying statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 14, not just that he's the way, the truth, and the life, not just that he is the means to the end, but that he is the end himself, he says. I'm coming to bring you to me, to myself. I and the Father are one. I am the means to that. That is what we have been longing for, Jesus says. This is another place Jesus stands up and says, to every restless heart, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. Philip, if what you want is to see the living God, congratulations. You're seeing him right now. Here's how the rest of the Bible speaks about Jesus in statements like this. Colossians one fifteen through 16 says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says this, that the Son is the radiance, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. John actually at the beginning of this gospel says these words, that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. So why why are we starting here tonight? Why do I tell you all of this? Here's why. The reason is this. If you want to know the living God, and trust me, you do. Whether you think so or not, you do. If you want to know the living God, then you want to know Jesus. If you already know the living God, if you already know him but you want more of him, and trust me, you do, it's what you were made for. It's where you'll find rest for your souls. It's the one thing in life that will satisfy you is to know the living God. If you want to know him, Jesus says that you do that by knowing me. And our best place to do that is in this book. And so that's our goal for you this semester that your eyes would be opened to the glory and the beauty and the ultimate reality that is Jesus and that in him you would know the God that you were made to know. And by the way, if you're unsure, if you're not quite sure if Jesus is the way to know God, I just want to ask you to come and observe him. There's some things about Jesus that we can prove, many things that we can prove objectively by studying and looking at the evidence. I love actually looking at the evidence for Jesus and, and how we can know his claims are true. I love that stuff. There's some things that are important to do that. And There are also this truth, though, that Jesus and his own glory and his beauty is what some writers call self-evident, in the same way that when you look at the sun, you just know it's bright. You don't have to look at a bunch of facts and figures to prove that to you. In the same way that when you taste honey, you can just know it's sweet, and nobody has to explain to you the chemical makeup of it to prove to you that it's sweet. The same is actually true of Jesus. If you will spend time just looking at him, really looking at him with open eyes and open heart, his beauty, his glory is self-evident. And my hope for, not just you guys, myself this year as we study, is that we will see more and more of that um, as we study him in his word and that he will bring us into fellowship with him and the God that we were made to know. Let me pray for that and we'll be done tonight. Father, we want you, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their place in you. And so please bring us to yourself. I pray, Lord, if there are people here who don't know you, that you would open their eyes to see you in Jesus this week, this semester. If uh, there are people here who know you, that you would open their eyes, our eyes, so that we may see Jesus more fully, see him as he is, and, and in knowing him, know you, his Father. That's what we want, Lord. That's what we long for. Please, in your grace, give that to us.